you know, one thing I find myself saying more recently is, is looking at this season of challenges with, with this crisis as what do we, what opportunities are uniquely being offered right now? You know, it's been a theme for us. What, what are we learning now? Or what, what new opportunities should we be paying attention to instead of focusing on scarcity and loss and limits um, of which there are many? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talk About the Industry. Today, our illustrious guest is Garrett Anderson. Garrett Anderson began his training in Walnut Creek, California, under the direction of Richard Kamek and Zola DeShong at the Contra Costa Ballet Center. He continued to study on scholarship at San Francisco Ballet School and then in Pacific Northwest Ballet's professional division. In 2001, Garrett joined San Francisco Ballet as a member of the Corps de Ballet and in 2005 was promoted to soloist. During his time there, he danced works by George Balanchine, Helgi Tomasin, Yuri Posakoff, Christopher Weldon, Jerome Robbins, and Mark Morris. After seven years in the company, he left to join the Royal Ballet of Flanders in Antwerp, Belgium as a first soloist under the direction of Catherine Bennett's. There he toured extensively throughout Europe and the world, dancing works by renowned choreographers including William Forsyth and Marsha Haydi. In January of 2011, he returned to the United States to dance with Trey McIntyre Project for their touring season before joining Hubbard Street Dance Chicago. During his five seasons with Hubbard Street, he danced the work of Yuri Killian, Ohad Naharin, Matsek, Alejandro Cerudo, and Nacho Duato, among others. In 2016, Garrett became chair of the Dance Department of New Mexico School for the Arts, where he created curriculum, taught, choreographed, and staged existing works, including pieces by Alejandro Cerudo and Penny Saunders. He has since performed three seasons with SF Dance Works, for which he was named one of the year's Outstanding Male Performers by Dance Europe. In 2018, Garrett was named Artistic Director of Ballet Idaho and has since led the company into bold new territory curating seasons that balance the technique and grandeur of traditional ballet while emphasizing the artistic exploration inherent in newer, more contemporary works. Under his leadership, the company continues to thrive. Garrett was the recipient of an American Ballet Theater National Dance Scholarship and holds a BA from St. Mary's College of California. Welcome, Garrett. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to have you. I think that, uh, I mean, we met, obviously, I was a lighting director for Hubbard Street and you were a dancer for uh, about five years. Uh, I always had an immense amount of respect for you as uh, not just a dancer, but also a person. And I was so excited when you got the artistic directorship at Ballet Idaho. And since it's been so fun for me to watch you flourish there, I think you're really taking the company in a fantastic direction. And I'm Quite excited to see what the rest of your career as an artistic director looks like. Thanks, Matt. Well, I have to say that um, having you come and work with Ballet Idaho as a lighting designer has helped bring the company along um, in that direction. So thank you for all of those enhancements that you've provided. Thanks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I It's been some of the most rewarding work of my career, certainly. Um, and I think probably objective, some of the best uh, design work I've done for dance. And that's a combination of a number of things. But it but it starts really with, uh, I think, with really good leadership um, from the top, you know. Um, so 
kudos to both of us, I guess. <laughs> no, it's good. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate you saying so. It's, it's, um, a lot of lighting designers, uh, can relate with this. It's rare to be able to continually go back to a place where you have, uh, such a great connection with the leadership and the staff and, um, and the creative teams involved. And it's, I think that's part of the reason why, uh, we're able to churn out work. That's, that's so rewarding. Oh yeah. From my perspective, I have to say it makes my job easier when I'm able to hire, uh, people as talented as, as I've been fortunate enough to work with yeah. my career and bring those people in. I can just sit back and, uh, enjoy the program coming together when I have such capable hands on deck. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we both had a really good experience in these two reps. It was nice to see you work with, with choreographers and um, for, for them to comment on how uh, your collaboration really enhanced the process and, and the piece for them. Thanks. Um, you were doing more than just the lighting. Um, especially with last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess it's much more of scenographic design. Um, as that's, that's quite common, I think in contemporary dance, but yeah. I appreciate you saying so. I, I think it, I think, um, I didn't mean for this to be a theme, but it has since become a theme. I think about people's superpowers a lot. Uh, and I think that your, your superpower as a dancer was, I mean, not just your dance ability, but like how, uh, your presence in the room. But as an artistic director, I feel like your superpower is finding exactly the right people that you need to do the job. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that's incredible and incredibly difficult, by the way. But let's let's back up for a sec. Let's talk about uh, I'm really interested in how you got into dance and uh, your your time dancing and how that led into a professional career. Getting into dance. Well, um, my mother had been a ballet dance student her whole life basically and um, at a certain point uh, her parents let her know that she needed to quit dancing and pursue a real career oh wow yeah and they they made that clear that that wasn't a wasn't a job that she needed to get a job so she became a physical therapist and ended up helping dancers oh interesting wonderful but her her affinity for it never really diminished. Um, she kept taking ballet classes as an adult Yeah, and would bring me to the studio. I don't really remember this, but apparently I would come and I would bring my little action figures and sit on the side and play and sort of <laughs> look over and watch. And more and more, I would, I would, she thought I was interested because I guess I yeah. would just stare at what was happening in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I got a little older, she took me to some performances. One that I remember uh, vividly was mm -hmm. uh, on Juliet at San Francisco Ballet, and we lived we lived about two two and a half hour drive from San Francisco, so it was a big trip from to get to the city. And yeah, yeah, I, I remember two things about that performance. Mm -hmm. One was just the drama of it. You know, yeah. the one story. The music is so dramatic and intense and emotionally charged. And, yeah, um, and and also the men on stage because I think a lot of people, you know, that haven't had experience with ballet think about ballerinas. And I right. was just blown away by the athleticism um, and the acting and all of that coming together and seeing these incredible men on stage. And, um, and there were some kids in it too. And yeah. just being like, oh, I could be, I could be on stage with, with this kind of incredible. And then I think I was drawn to performance. Um, I was, a, I, 
at that time, I think I had already been studying the cello. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just taking lessons on that. And I think my first recital for the cello, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I played terribly, but I, <laughs> I got back to my seat and my, my mom said I had this little bit, a little bit more confidence than when I had gone up there. I leaned over and whispered in her ear, I like being up there. <laughs> so it wasn't that I enjoyed playing or that I played very well, but I liked being on stage and I had immediately identified that feeling of like, you either hate that or you love it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, so she just sort of, as as I got older, kind of um, encouraged my interest. And at one point, a group came in my school in the second grade. And it wasn't yeah. to, it wasn't ballet, but it was some sort of dance group that did a little showing. And I came home talking about it. I was really excited. And she mm-hmm. said, I think if you're interested in dance, you need to start with ballet. And I didn't really know the distinction at that point, but said, okay, whatever. Sign up. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, that's how, that's kind of the, that was the genesis of, of my interest. In, and my mother, um, so you mentioned in my bio that I trained at, at Contra Costa Ballet. Yeah. And the, the one of the people that was running that, Sola Deshong, um, mm-hmm. grew up with my mom in Fresno, oh, California. Okay. And she went on, right about the time when my mom stopped uh, yeah or maybe before that she went on to go to san francisco ballet and then american ballet theater and she oh, was wow. in this uh career wow and my mom kind of kept track of her and she had come back to california and started that school after directing the san francisco ballet school yeah with her husband yeah started that school in Walnut creek so she knew mm-hmm. if i at a point when i got serious enough she knew okay you need to go uh you need to go train here. This, this person is going to do it right. All right. So, uh, so you went to Walnut Creek and trained there. And then how did you, what was the process of getting into San Francisco Ballet's Academy? Was that a a tough process? No, it was, well, I mean, it was, it was, um, competitive to get into the school. Yeah. Of course it's easier for, for boys because there's so few. Mm -hmm. Um, but at a certain point I was one of, I think three, boys in my class yeah and my teachers recognized um at a certain point just you need to be in a class full of of young men yeah and we can give you the training but you really need that environment yeah so and they had been as i mentioned formerly the directors of san francisco valley school yeah and then that was the school with the professional company attached and that was the career track kind of school yeah so um, much to their I, you know, I applaud them for that because a lot of schools, mm-hmm. a lot of studios want to hang on to their, their students and especially students that are coming from promise. Yeah. And they kind of ushered me out the door and said, we love you, but it's time for you to move on. Yeah. That's unique. I think. Yeah. And so they, they called and set up the audition for me. The rest kind of followed from there. And that was the big step toward a professional career is getting into that program. Yeah. That's great. Um, so from that program, you were able to join San Francisco Ballet. What was that experience like uh, in it? I mean, San Francisco Ballet is one of the one of the world's uh, foremost ballet companies. You know, that's a it's a bit of a machine. Um, how did you fit into that? Uh, I had a kind of unconventional path toward that because mm-hmm. um, I was a little bit I felt like I was the underdog in my class. Yeah. You know, and sometimes if I, I talk about this now, some of my classmates or people from that time go, oh, you did? <laughs> but I mean, my, my perspective was I was smaller than the rest of the guys. I was less uh, developed just physically. Yeah. Um, I wasn't strong. I couldn't do all the things as well. Yeah. Um, I, I was held back even one year. Like a lot of my classes 
moved up to the next level. Oh, wow. And, and one other boy kind of, who was also smaller, you know, we mm-hmm. just, they said, no, you need to, you need to spend one, one more year in this level. Wow. So I think that um, hurt my confidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, it was absolutely true. Like I needed, I yeah. needed just, you know, to build some more strength. So I actually left San Francisco Ballet School at a certain point. Oh, wow. My classmates were um, all these international ballet competition winners mm-hmm. and just uh, insanely talented people that I list and list of names and they're all principal dancers in various companies now. Yeah, sure. But I was very intimidated by that and I loved it. I mean, I loved yeah, it. Yeah. it really me because I'd look around the room and they just think these amazing dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just felt like I'm not going to, I'm not going to get a job here. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't believe in myself that in that context for whatever reason. So I went, um, I had been going in the summers to study at Pacific Northwest Ballet PMB in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a different emphasis in training. And I think the, the things that I was really strong in were not as common in that, in that school. And the things that I, that I didn't have, they were really good at, at providing. So there, to me, they were, um, the emphasis or at least the emphasis that I gained was, um, more polish and more stylistic, um, yeah. uh, approach to, they had a, a balance sheet emphasis in their training. Yeah. Yeah. But I went there and felt like, oh, I have something different to offer. I have this really strong classical training. It, it kind of stood out. Um, and then my, my girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Courtney, who is now my wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know her well. I do. She's a lovely person. But she ended up uh, getting a job at San Francisco Ballet. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we did a year to, together there in their professional division program. Yeah. And she did her audition tour and her first stop was San Francisco and I encouraged her to go. Yeah, yeah. She had never seen the company. She didn't know that much about it. And I said, it's yeah. an amazing company, Courtney, and you, you have to go yeah. include that in the audition. And she was with, I think, four or five other girls and, mm-hmm. and the one they picked out of that group. Wow. Like, I don't know. I think I should, I should take it. And I said, yeah, you have to take it. Yeah, exactly. And we were long distance for a year in which um, we auditioned three times. Yeah. For San Francisco Valley. <laughs> yeah. Finally got a job and then I had a great career there. So it was, yeah. uh, I tell that to, to my students and to dancers who are auditioning, like, don't, don't think of an audition as a one time thing. And then it's decided. Yeah. And that happened with Hubbard street too. And Glenn was big on that kind of building a relationship and visiting the company several times. And, yeah. You know, I think it makes a lot more sense than one class experience and then you decide who someone is as an artist yeah yeah well particularly in in a in a creative and artistic profession uh i had a a theater professor tell us that uh you know an audition or a job interview is really an introduction yeah and the best thing you can do is uh is leave that experience having learned about the people in the room and them having learned about you Uh, because you don't know you know, how many spots they have, you know, I mean, you don't know the circumstances of, of the people that are sitting or standing at the front of the room. You right. Know? A lot of it is timing. Okay. So you, so how long were you at San Francisco ballet? I was there seven seasons. Yeah. And how, um, what sort of rep were you doing there? Was it, was it mostly traditional ballet, classical ballet, or was there contemporary work involved in that at all? There was contemporary work, um, for sure. And the, mostly, contemporary ballet 
yeah, I mean, Yuri Posikov comes to comes to mind. Right, uh, very prolific choreographer. Yeah, he became uh, the resident choreographer there. Prior to to his work, it was uh, Val Canabrilli as the resident choreographer. Mm-hmm. And Helgi choreographed a lot, and we had uh, our frequent kind of rep choreographers there were Christopher Wielden. Uh, yeah, he, he made a lot of work early in his career. He was kind of bouncing between City Ballet and San Francisco Ballet. It seemed like, yeah. And uh, Lar Lubavitch, um, yes, Lar, very. Uh, I would say less frequent with him. His big contributions were Othello, which he created concurrently on American Ballet Theater and San Francisco Ballet. Oh, okay. He did. Some, he did set some rep, and he made a elemental Brubeck on on us, of which I was really yeah to be a part of that piece being created. Um, Mark Morris made a ton of work. Mm-hmm. Did a full length. Sylvia on us, and we did a lot of his rep. Um, we got a little bit of a mix in there, Stanton Welch as well. Um, we didn't do the more um, just contemporary dance. We were introduced to William Forsyth. Mm, okay. Courtney and I both really uh, connected with that work and connected with him. Yeah. And that was the really one of the, the reasons that we went to Royal Ballet of Flanders because that was. 80% of the rep we were doing, it felt like that's probably not true, but we did a lot. <laughs> yeah. And Kathy Bennett, who was directing them, was his rehearsal director in Frankfurt Ballet for many, many years. I knew her name sounded familiar. Yeah. So you're both at, you're both at San Francisco Ballet and you decide to make the jump to Royal Ballet of Flanders, which uh, a lot of dancers would get into a company like San Francisco Ballet and say, you know what, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my career. Uh, was it really the want to do, it sounds like it was a want to do contemporary work that kind of pulled you away from them or at least opened you up to looking for other options. Yeah, it was, it was partly that it was partly wanting to do contemporary work and just different choreographers. Yeah. We, like I said, we done, we did a nice variety at San Francisco Ballet for sure. Yeah. But we also, we had repeated a lot of those same choreographers and it, there was a bit of a cycle, not that, not that Helgi wasn't bringing in new people, but, uh, we felt like we understood and had experienced the kind of constellation of work in at SFB. We knew that, yeah. But we wanted also a different process. And, and in Europe, um, there was a very different timeline for work. Yeah, a little less pressured based on you know based on money. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just different metrics. I totally get how that works here and understand why it can be different with you know, the government subsidies and support there and also just different audience habits. And- yeah, very different audience habits. Yeah. My folks similarly, like they, they sang in Germany uh, and my mother sang in Italy as well. And, but, you know, that, that German system of opera and dance and music, it's very, you know, it's it's about consistency. They, they don't have to sell it as much as we do here in the States, you know, and, and you're right. It's government subsidies and, and a difference in, in uh, audience culture. Yeah, that's right. Both of your parents were opera stars. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say stars. Uh, they wouldn't say stars, although I uh, I got to listen to my parents. I mean, they they gave recitals for years and years and years. Uh, in fact, there's a wonderful recording of them doing the, I believe it's the Verdi Requiem with the Annapolis Symphony. Uh, mm. And uh, they're, they're incredible. You know, I was just always so impressed. Yeah, I, I it's, it's interesting to to hear them talk about the European system. Uh, and it gave me some context for when the dancers that I was working with 
would leave the States and go dance for European countries. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if you have the opportunity being doing your craft, practicing your craft in Europe or being able to take to let your craft take you uh, to different places, I think is one of the best um, perks of doing what we do. Yeah. And I, I, I have to say, we didn't know then, you know, it's not that we knew all the, the nuances and differences that the, the experience in Europe would would provide, yeah. but we knew, um, we knew it would be just a different life experience and we knew we would work with different people and just, mm-hmm. we also knew, uh, in our heart of hearts that if we didn't leave San Francisco Ballet mm-hmm. at that juncture, we probably just never would. Yeah. It just, that yeah, we was too good of a job and it was too comfortable of a place and with beautiful city, amazing company. Yeah. Yeah. Very well supported. And we yeah. just felt like we had this window where we were considering what we wanted mm-hmm. and it felt like, yeah, we could definitely stay here and have a wonderful career. And I'm, a lot of my colleagues from that chapter did stay and did have a wonderful career. And, yeah, of course. But, but yeah, for us, we wanted a little bit of adventure. We knew that we wanted to have a family and we knew that it would be harder to make that kind of move when we had little ones. Yeah. Um, like the window of, of opportunity. So, yeah. Well, that's great. And you were, so you were in Europe for how long? Um, I was in Royal Ballet Flanders for three seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My third season was cut a little bit short because I had the opportunity to, to go on tour with Trey McIntyre project. Yeah. A really interesting dance company. Um, yeah. Based in Boise, Idaho, uh, hilariously enough where you yeah. <laughs> have now ended up. <laughs> yeah. Probably the reason I'm here. Yeah. So yeah, I had, I had, we were in in the midst of our third season and the executive director um, of and dancer in Trey McIntyre, Project, John Michael shirt, um, good friend of mine, uh, yeah. hadn't touched me and said, Hey, you know, we, we, and we had talked about, you know, maybe I could dance for TMP one day, but yeah, so they, they got in touch with me and said, one of our dancers um, is injured and mm-hmm. he was re- recovering from an injury. He had had knee surgery. And they were looking at this six month, uh, 30 city world tour. And so, and we had been talking about moving back home and yeah. the company was in a little bit of turmoil and, and looking at a transition on the horizon. And we kind of felt like mm. probably going to end for us. This chapter is going to end for us soon. And the company was, yeah. was about to change. So we, we took the opportunity, Courtney stayed to finish out that season. Which was great because she was dancing a ton and having a really wonderful experience. And I was eager to to um, to check out Trey McIntyre Project and yeah. jump on that tour. So that was really about getting to know Boise a bit better and, and mm-hmm. coming back to the States. So after that tour, uh, you and Courtney ended up in Chicago uh, where you started dancing with Hubbard Street, yeah. um, which is where our paths crossed. It sounds like, uh, similarly to, uh, Trey McIntyre and to San Francisco ballet that you had your eye on Hubbard street and knew they were a good American contemporary company. Yeah. I admired Hubbard street for a long time. Good friend of our mutual friend of ours, Pablo, you know, yeah. Yeah. Pablo, he and I danced together in San Francisco ballet for five, I guess, five of my seven years there. And he, yeah. And then when he joined, Hubbard Street. I I had visited him in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I did class with the company. I saw them on tour. Yeah. So it was the same kind of thing. Like I had admired the work for so long. And yeah. Prior to going to Europe, I just didn't identify as, enough as a contemporary dancer. I just thought I don't, sure. I don't have those skills. I don't know how to move in that way. I'm very. I'm not 
I'm not like them, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. I had a couple of experiences. Um, I did a, uh, an intensive program designed for professional dancers with Alonzo King. Right. And of course, with Alonzo, you know him well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but so I, I had done a workshop with him and he really opened my eyes to a different way of looking at the work, even just the, the more classical work I was doing. Yeah. It was a really important moment. So had had been curious about other ways of, of utilizing what I knew mm-hmm. and also learning three things. And I had been in touch with um, Glenn Edgerton, who was the director. Yeah. Street, and I had known him before that. Yeah, just happenstance, really. He he had just left Netherlands Dance Theater, mm-hmm. uh, where he was the director for many years, uh, as well as the director. And he was in San Francisco for a summer teaching job. Um, and Courtney had seen she was taking open class at a different studio and mm-hmm. had seen a posting saying we need housing for faculty. Yeah, yeah. And she answered that and said, "We're actually going to be on tour most of that time." Mm-hmm. So Glenn ended up staying in our house and we met, <laughs> we met him when we got there. We went on tour and we came back and we had a couple weeks where we cohabitated. And, That's funny. And at the end of the program, um, one of the, one of the male dancers got injured yeah. and they had, they had a performance that was at the end of the culmination of that intensive. And he asked us to jump in and learn the part. Yeah. And it was symphony of Psalms. Okay. Uh, it was a Killian piece, and it was the first time I'd ever danced Yuri Killian's work. And of course, being staged by Glenn, who had danced it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was just an amazing, and it was with students. It wasn't a professional performance, but it was like, oh, I, I love working on this material. And yeah. The way of understanding the work and, yeah. Um, and also getting to know him. So we had kept in touch. Glenn and I had kept in touch over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, I had known when he was in Chicago. And when he got the job after Jim, yeah, Vincent, yeah, and and I knew from the company members that uh, they were having a great time, and yeah. so I had visited whenever I went and visited Pablo, I would take class again. That kind of yeah, sure. It was a, a phased audition, and yeah, then, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then when there was a job opening, Glenn let me know, and he said, "If you if you're seriously interested, you know, we should talk about it." Yeah, and I still, you know, I I give Glenn a lot of credit because I still didn't think I was that kind of dancer, even though in, in Europe I had done a lot more contemporary work. I'd actually worked with Yuri Killian. Yeah. Um, and William Forsyth. Right. And, and, and gotten like amazing exposure to it. Yeah. Uh, it's different to be doing it and to really take it on as your identity. Yeah. And so he said, you know, a good dancer is a good dancer. And I believe you can learn all these things. Yeah. And so I, I think my final audition for Upper Street was like a week long. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was staying with Penny and Pablo mm-hmm. and I was just a wreck. I mean, the audition destroyed me. I was like, wow. I was doing some, <laughs> I was doing some OHAT, learning some OHAT rep. Yeah. So I had blisters and I had thrown my neck out and my hamstring was pulled. And I was having a great time. I was having the time of my life. <laughs> and yeah, it was, uh, I worked with Alejandro in that, or he he came in and watched. That's what it was. He came yeah. and watched a solo that I had learned that he had also learned in the same piece. It was from 2072. So he, oh, yeah. And I coached me on that. I worked with Terry. I worked with Glenn. Um, yeah. So it was this, it was this whole experience that I was like kind of being 
broken in. Yeah, you do kind of get broken in when you join that company, don't you? <laughs> that wasn't even it wasn't even in. It was just the audition. So I really I love yeah yeah I to emulate that a bit when I have auditioners here, and that was the entry to uh, the Hubbard Street chapter, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought that you were a phenomenal addition to the company. Thanks. My distinction between traditional ballet work and contemporary ballet work is is maybe more than the average layman now that I've spent a number of years in it, but, but, you know, it's still an outsider's understanding. Uh, so I would never have looked at you and said, Oh, he's not really a contemporary dancer. Uh, but I did see a lot of similarities with the way that you approach the work, uh, as Pablo, you know, yeah. both of whom had really strong classical technique. And one of my favorite performances ever was getting to see you and Pablo do that duet in Kazi Casa, uh, the Matzek work. I mean, both of you were, uh, were such incredible dancers and, you know, the entire history of your friendship, like added to the intrigue and drama in that duet. And like, it was just, every time I saw it, I, it made me want to cry, you know, it's just, it's so, it was so moving. Thank you. And that was one of the highlights. And I, of course, it became very emotionally rich knowing that Pablo was yeah. leaving the company. I think it was really meaningful kind of yeah. watershed kind of performance for us. Yeah, absolutely. Matzek, I think, uh, I mean, interesting for me as a lighting director to see how these choreographers came in and, and set the work on the dancers, all of whom I, I loved and respected, right? But also interesting to see how they treated us, the production staff, right? And Matzek was, the best way I can describe him is he was a, a, a true artist, but also a true gentleman, you know, mm -hmm. like he and all of his repertoires that came in were so giving and loving and like... They had, they had made this incredible work, but they also, I, I, they never spoke down to anyone. They, you know, they thought everyone was a collaborator and I just, I, I so appreciated that, you know, cause that's not always the case. No, you're right. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of integrity in that process and a lot of respect for the artists that always invite the dancers to be collaborators. And as much as we wanted to always do our best and be and we were pushing ourselves and feeling uh you know the pressure of of trying to show up every day and, and right be on our a game it all made us feel safe to to really yeah throw ourselves into the work because um we didn't have the fear of of that judgment we just knew that everyone was trying to get to the same place um yeah and he's a great example of that yeah, it's huge. Also, I uh, I remember him. Uh, <laughs> this is so goofy, but uh, also increased my respect for him. He at the time was uh, I don't know uh, early seventies, I think, and he would go out to the loading dock and do pull ups uh, in the morning, like twenty of them in a row. <laughs> when did I never hear about this? <laughs> he was in amazing shape though, because he would demonstrate his work. And his work is very physical. Um, yeah, it's very sophisticated work, but it's not complicated. And he, yeah, he was really good at just being um, about coaching it this way too, about knowing exactly what was essential in it. And it felt like a demonstration yeah. in a way. It didn't. It wasn't like a lot of moves that you had to incorporate. Yeah. Into. And he was so good at showing it, though. Uh, we wouldn't expect it. We wouldn't expect that full physicality. But he would drop into right. it really low second position that none of none of us could do <laughs> but 
but he's it makes sense that you to me with your theater background yeah um that you resonated with his work because he to me he really approached it uh that way he always approached it almost as a as a director as a dramatic director rather than just looking at the choreography he was really telling stories and thinking about yeah how the intention and the movement was going to be communicated and that was really the most important thing to him yeah yeah i i've I've never been a huge fan of storybook ballet mostly because i think of ballet a lot like i think of american football if you have spent your entire youth training you know going to youth camps uh where they teach you how to tackle and how to do drills and you know and you've developed friends and a culture around doing uh, you know around this that sporting event uh then when you grow up you want to watch the best in the world do it Uh, and likewise with ballet i think a true appreciation comes from it if you have uh, you know if you grew up around the culture of dance and that sort of thing so you know Part of the reason I enjoyed Matzek's work so much, you know, storybook ballet for me was was too presentational. It's big, at least what I've experienced, big presentation and outstanding technique. Right. But the theatrical conventions are very traditional, Um, whereas Matzek told a story in a similar way, but it was not as presentational. You know, to me, it was almost like the dance version of comparing uh, Shakespeare to you know a more contemporary playwright like uh tracy letts um or shakespeare to uh sam shepherd you know you are still telling a story but you're telling it in a way that isn't as presentational there's a mastery in shakespeare's language there's a mastery in right classical ballet technique and a lot of it is right a lot of it feels decorative and it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that that can't be totally amazing but it's it's a very different paradigm yeah agreed and i i think for me for my artistic taste matzak was just right in the center of of those to create another analogy he uses movement like uh hemingway uses words yeah to me it always felt stripped down it felt very pure um, and very uh, powerful yeah well, the intention was always clear to the audience. Yeah. That's part of what I like about dance, though, is that, you know, the specificities of the story can change, should change based on what each audience member is feeling or what they see. It's a language that's so open for interpretation. Uh, and what I what I enjoyed about Kazikasa in particular, what I see in all of Matzek's work that I've experienced is he would set up a duet and like that relationship would feel dramatic or romantic or conflicting or whatever but it could change with each performance and still live in the same territory you know it was like he carved a really beautiful uh space for it to live and in order for it to be done correctly the intention had to be there but depending on how i was feeling as an audience member it might seem more combative it might seem uh, more disparate, it might seem more um, affectionate or empathetic, you know, but it still existed in the space that he created. And to me, that was that's a beautiful fusion of story and dance. I think that's why dancers love work like that too, because from you know, the performer, yeah, once you've learned it, uh, the dancing of it or the performing of it, especially, it doesn't 
I don't remember thinking about the steps very much. A lot of pieces in my career that I feel like those were the highlights when the choreography sort of went away and I just got to be, you know, be present in that on stage in that experience. And I think that the audience too, mm -hmm. that's really when you're drawn in is when you're, when you're having this shared experience and then the dancer isn't worried about the steps and neither are you, you're just enjoying right. the performance in this sort of ephemeral presence. Right. Uh, let's change gears again a little bit. This is interesting. I think conundrum, uh, that a lot of dancers have to deal with, have had to deal with, uh, when do you decide that you're done and mm -hmm. what you do afterwards? Right. Talk about your experience with there because Hubbard Street was the last company that you danced for sort of full time, right? It was. And it was it was in so many ways the highlight, like the high point. Yeah. You know, because it was the time in, in my career when when the wealth of experience mm -hmm. I had from various different companies mm -hmm. and just the accumulation of years and the opportunity to work with such amazing artists, both the colleagues, my colleagues as the other dancers and the, and all of these world renowned choreographers. Yeah. Um, so it was really those, the nexus of those two things was so wonderful. And mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it's, it's when you reach a point in your personal life where you start to think like, what is next? And am I, am I doing all the things to set myself up for the next chapter? Yeah. And I had a, well, now I have three, but I had my first two <laughs> in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And I think Rowan was like six months old, and mm -hmm. I started to feel like I need to make sure I'm providing for my family. And I had gotten my real estate license, right? Working nights and weekends, doing real estate, and some extra money. And yeah, it was it was rough a little bit, and I think yeah. it was amplified just by my you know, the male ego of like, I must provide for my family, the hunter gatherer in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I loved. It was like a hormonal thing that I was like, ah, am I being, maybe I felt guilty because I was never home. You know, I was yeah. working or I was on tour and I felt like, meanwhile, Courtney's, you know, at home and we didn't have any family in Chicago. So she's there. Yeah. Caring for well. and, yeah. You know, I felt also, I was just really tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always was someone who was very critical of my own work. And I think most dancers are. I don't know a lot of dancers who are like, yeah, I love the way I dance all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, um, I was just always evaluating. I think like it was a magical chapter, as I said, in my mm -hmm. professional career, but I was, I was conflicted. I was like, am yeah. I doing this as well as I want to be doing it? Am I providing for my family? So all the roles I was really, and this kind of goes into your, your question about work-life balance, which is now yeah. a question in my current job. But uh -huh. at that point, I felt like I'm doing all these things and I don't feel like I'm doing any of them very well. Mm -hmm. And Glenn uh, was so supportive of that yeah. and just saying like, yeah, you're tired, you're I think you're doing great, but I, I get it. I think you need, mm -hmm. you, know, you need to just take a breath. And he gave me, I think, a, a six month. I don't know how long it was, but he gave me like a mm -hmm. period of time to kind of reevaluate. It was kind of a dramatic yeah. And I started to feel like I, I want to do other things. I think I'm ready to, to kind of mm -hmm. take that step. And it wasn't easy to decide. I think it took me a couple of years, really, to consider. Yeah, yeah. 
because as dancers and any artists, and you can relate to this, your your identity is wrapped in your work. It's not just right. This is a good job, and I enjoy it. It's this is who I am, and then so there's all the trepidation of like, who am I if I don't do this? Right. And part right. of me always wanted to find out. You know. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think early on in my career, I didn't. I certainly didn't think, oh, one day I will be a director or a choreographer. I just thought, right. One day I'll do something else. Yeah. And I'm really grateful for the openings that that stepping away from full-time performing created to do some really wonderful freelance uh, work. And then I started teaching more and that, Mm -hmm. that provided the opportunity to, to learn about, you know, how to, how to articulate the things that I I thought about a lot as a performer, but how to Mm -hmm. pass on to other people and to, to, I mean, I found that I learned much more about dance as a teacher. There's nothing that can really prepare you for stepping away from something that defines you so fully. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really grateful for the ability to remain connected with the art form in the ways that I can now. Yeah. Um, and there was a period of time where I didn't have that. You know, I was doing real estate. Yeah. Doing a bunch of stuff and realizing like I miss being in the studio consistently. And yeah. a friend of mine from San Francisco Valley actually was. Mm-hmm. was working in New Mexico and she had heard about this position at the New Mexico School for the Arts in Santa Fe and said, I don't know what you and Courtney are doing right now, but there's this job opening and I thought of you and I hadn't spoken to her in, in at least consistently in years. Yeah, sure. She just thought of us and we and we were at that moment of, of really taking stock and thinking like it would be really nice to focus on one thing rather than doing yeah, all the different jobs and all the freelance. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, it was fun, but you know, stressful. Yeah. So uh, you were in New Mexico for a year, this teaching job, right? And then two, two years there. Two years. Yeah, and I, I actually thought that was going to be a much longer chapter. Um, yeah, I was really uh, challenged by that role. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, teaching dance is one thing, but running a running a department, being a state employee, working with the school system. Yeah. Because that school was a public charter high school okay. and a private academy. So we really straddled two worlds. Yeah. Um, we had all of the same like nonprofit uh, arts organization challenges of fundraising and development. Mm-hmm. And then we had to navigate the, you know, the state school bureaucracy. I had to get my teaching license from the state. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, I was managing a staff. Mm-hmm. I was managing a budget. I was programming a season. I was working with the dancers and, of course, their parents because they were high school kids. Right. Yeah. There was a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful place to, to learn all those things. So it was a it was really a fascinating chapter. Mm-hmm. I, learned a ton. I, I had a, a ton left to learn. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't uh, leave there a master teacher or or administrator mm-hmm. or any of that but i yeah. um i did i i did discover that i liked the director role you yeah. know i liked yeah liked programming i liked um the challenges of you know the the kind of multiplicity of challenges i think yeah but yeah they're new campus now the school's doing really well that's great um, it was it was a fascinating time but yeah i i uh i was in boise for a wedding mm-hmm. uh, and friends of mine let me know about the the opening here. Mm-hmm. I had spent time in Boise, obviously, with Terry McIntyre Project, but I had never seen Ballet Idaho perform. Yeah. 
So I really didn't know a lot about the company. Yeah. Um, but I knew, I knew I liked the place. I knew the community was amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just like uh, fertile ground for yeah, for what a company can become. And um, and then of course after I applied mm-hmm. and was further along in that process, I researched the company. I came to Boise several times to see them. Yeah. Um, and I was thrilled by by what I what I found there. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And now a word from our sponsors. This episode of Talk About the Industry has been brought to you by me. That's right, it's just me. Literally. No fancy audio engineers, no sponsorship money from a lighting manufacturer, and certainly no trust fund to fall back on. Just an unemployed lighting designer sitting in my living room trying to find a way to keep myself from crying to sleep. So, if you're enjoying this podcast and thinking to yourself, how can I help Matt keep the darkness at bay? How can I help Matt keep the darkness at bay? Then why not consider sending an encouraging email to our official podcast email address, talkabouttheindustry at gmail.com. We'll accept such middle-of-the-road encouragement as, good job, or hang in there, buddy, or I'm surprised your podcast doesn't suck, or even... I almost finished the first episode. Why are they all so long? Literally anything will do. I'd just like to know if you're paying attention. Don't like the commitment of email? Yeah, I don't really like using email for stuff. Then consider using your thumbs to find us on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast directory of your choice. It'll help make my mom real proud of me. Oh, that's sweet. That would be nice. Thanks again to the, I'm sure, dozens of you who are listening. And now, back to our show. I I have two questions. The first is, um, how has your approach to the artistic director role uh, changed since you've taken over? Um... And the second is, uh, how are you, how do you approach programming a season for this specific company? Hmm. Well, that's, those are really excellent questions. Uh, it sounds like you learned a lot about being a director in New Mexico, but then, and, and it also sounds like you weren't dancing thinking one day I'll become an artistic director. No, I wasn't. And I know a lot of dancers who kind of always have their sights set on that and they actually tailored their careers to lead to that yeah. in a way. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I just never, I just, it always just seemed like such a hard job. I just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, it is a hard job. <laughs> I always had a lot of respect for the role. I mean, I, I yeah. worked, I got to work for some really great people. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. Um, yeah. So how it changed, as I said, I think the goals were different, mm-hmm. you know, when you're working for an educational institution and your, and your goal is, is, is their education and yeah, yeah. things. Um, but in, in some ways that's not that different in a professional company. I mean, we're always one thing I, I often find myself saying is one of, one of my favorite things about being a dancer is that you're never done learning. You're never yeah. not. Yeah. Um, and I like, like I mentioned in moving into teaching, I started, I learned, I think on a deeper level about the art form and being a director, it's the same. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. So, so I'm still learning. I'm still learning with the, the artists that mm-hmm. that are part of this company, and 
Um, I think the goals change a little bit in that mm-hmm. um, we get to do more, we get to perform more. Yeah. So I get to program a kind of a richer experience or, or a fuller experience of, of a season. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we have a different role in the community as as really leaders in a community of really stellar arts organizations here in Boise. Mm-hmm. I think there's a different sense of we're bringing this art form forward. Yeah. I think you're I think you're taking Ballet Idaho in a really interesting direction. Talk to me about the choreography that that the company had before you took over and uh, how that's changed under your leadership. So before I took over, uh, Peter Anastos was the director for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the, prior to his time, the company was uh, merged with Eugene Ballet. Okay. And. Tony Pimble, who's still the director of Eugene Ballet, was the director of, of Ballet Idaho, as it was known then. So at a certain point, some of our supporters here had voiced that they wanted to have their own company distinct from Eugene Ballet. So at a certain point, the board split. Yeah. And they decided to start up our own company here. And they hired Peter as the director. And Peter found um, the dancers and started the company really from scratch. Oh, wow. The history of. Valley Idaho in another iteration. Yeah, yeah. He really built the company. Um, he he quickly created a Nutcracker, which is of course how any ballet company survived. Yep, which yep. was more of him, and he did it really quickly and really cheaply. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, once he had the kind of income that that created, he was able to build out the rep. Uh, I think one of his main achievements was the acquiring of balance sheet rep mm-hmm. and that's you have to get permission basically to do it yeah. and you have yeah. to prove that you're good enough to do it and and not every piece is granted to every company so you may qualify for certain pieces but yeah. not others so every time you know and i've had the same experience every time i've um, requested rights to a piece mm-hmm. they say well submit videos and, and uh, we'll we'll take a look so anyway peter was very uh, he he's a choreographer himself yeah he choreographed of the the rep in addition to what they did mm-hmm. um, in the launching canon, but he was um, he made it a goal I think to to develop the company and that was really uh, the barometer or one of the the barometers for him mm-hmm. was he was gaining ground and saying like he started with you know the the Lost Fantasy or the Serenade or the, the pieces that yeah. are kind of starter ballets if you will and yeah, he, sure. on his last season he was granted the rights for um, Agon, which is oh. a hard piece. And yeah. it was, you know, I think there was a conversation with one of the, the repeteurs who said uh, he, had, he had mentioned Agon in the past and he kind of laughed and said, oh, Peter, you're not going to, you're not going to get Agon. Really? And he said, oh, watch, I'm going to get it. So yeah. And in, in doing that, he was developing the dancer. Yeah. You know, with each, each piece that he brought from that, in that trajectory, you know, it's very challenging work. Mm-hmm. And he was also developing the audience. And I think that's equally important. Yeah. He was educating the audience on the value of, um, in this case, balancing work. But he was, he was showing that you know, different choreographers have different values. Mm-hmm. And to follow uh, a choreographer. And now, now that I'm bringing in very different choreographers, mm-hmm. um, I think, but people know to pay attention to that because of the work that people did. Yeah. Um, and he developed an audience. And yeah. He developed an audience 
that was who was appreciative of those things and not just coming to be entertained right or for the production yeah. itself although he was very good at entertaining them and providing great productions so sure. he did a lot of important work building uh building that following mm-hmm. and they um i would say train mcintyre project in a very different way and was a different yeah. but did a lot in the community to develop a taste for contemporary work. So those two, I, I was coming into a setting that had an appetite for ballet and had been created in that tradition. Mm-hmm. There was another group of people, and there was some crossover there too, of people who were interested in contemporary dance. Um, yeah, makes sense. So I, I felt like the rep that existed was different than the rep I wanted to do, Yeah, but um, was really important in how that, and prepare the dancers and the audience for the work that we're doing now. Yeah, that's great. When I look at your season right now, I see like, I mean, obviously you're still doing a nutcracker and, uh, but I, I see like a really, and this is part of one of the reasons why I respect what you're doing so much because you didn't come in and say like, well, we'll keep the nutcracker out of financial necessity, but we'll get rid of everything else and turn it into a completely contemporary company. You are... I think programming in a way that seems both fiscally responsible and really artistically interesting for both the dancers and the audience. Well, thanks. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. I would say, you know, as much as I love contemporary dance and that really inspires me, I was also a trained classical ballet dancer. And I think there's a foundation there um, in the tradition and the technique and the Right. But even even the lens with which a ballet dancer looks at work that can be an asset. It can also be limiting. So it was a, it was a constant dialogue on like how do we utilize the things that we've learned and how which can we let go of or mm-hmm. or know when when different values are appropriate. Yeah. But um. So as a director, I'm I I have an opportunity to really investigate that and say what in the kind of broad spectrum from classical ballet to to new contemporary work yeah what are the things that excite me as an artist and excited me as a performer what things do i relate to as an audience member and and then just paying attention to what people hear yeah what resonates here yeah where do we challenge the audience and where do we um give them something that they enjoy you know and uh and and there's always a mix, you know. There's a I I never want a program to be all one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important for the dancers to be stimulated by that and challenged by having to do all the things. I think you can look at this last program we did in March, uh, and we should talk about that next um, as a really uh, a really well curated program. You've got kind of a newer. Um, contemporary ballet uh choreographer doing uh a series of duets you've got a world-renowned famous uh ballet and contemporary choreographer lar lubovich right who's whose choreography mm-hmm. is rooted in ballet but contemporary with a more you know sort of traditional aspect i mean he was one of the people that defined the genre of contemporary ballet you're right that it's he's done a lot of work on ballet companies and dance, but his his training was also rooted in modern dance. So being in yeah. the Juilliard school and having really the, the icons of both ballet and modern dance and, and yeah. being the beginning of that new category, which we call contemporary, 
being right. kind of a confluence of both of those. Exactly. And then also you have Craig Davidson, who is uh, definitely a rising star in the contemporary dance world based in Zurich, but he's done, uh, he's done a number of, uh, uh, of projects all over the world, uh, including the United States. I think I thought he did incredible work on the company. Yeah. And that, that was really fun. I, we had done a piece of his last year Yeah, and the dancers loved it. He wasn't able to come. So we were yeah. sending videos back and forth. And of course I danced with Craig and I'd been in, in Craig's choreography in Belgium when he was just starting. Yeah. yeah. So he trusted me enough to represent what I knew he would want yeah. from that work and did an incredible job staging it and, and communicating with Craig yeah. as well. So we were coming out of that experience and having the dancers been exposed to to his vocabulary mm-hmm. um, and he the dancers already, although not in person. Mm-hmm. But it was really fun to see them get to dig in um, both of them, both Craig and the company, just get to yeah build on that relationship and he made he made the world premiere for that program and it was for a lot of people that one of the highlights for sure of the season and that program yeah i i really enjoyed uh designing that program and and that piece in particular um i shouldn't say designing the entire program because uh clifton taylor lit uh something about night originally uh fantastic dance lighting designer you had experience with but hadn't hadn't uh, designed originally, right? Yeah. Off-screen also, uh, off-screen and Alejandro Cerruto piece, you know, very, very scenic and scenographic heavy work, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And very, very shadowy. Uh, Alejandro was a resident choreographer while while I was at Hubbard Street, of course. And so I know his work well, and I've had to um, foster that work through a number of different lighting designers. I know, uh, I know his aesthetic and I know what he wants the stage to look like but also i have a really deep understanding of of what his lighting designers and what he as an artist are trying to envision as far as the pace of the uh, of the piece and the design work and you know he and he is a choreographer that definitely uh integrates production elements into the flow into the story of the piece you know it's not just uh, a story with dance in a setting that's appropriate you know he he wants the scenery and the lighting to take an active to be active participants in uh in his pieces yeah so yeah i think that it was a really well curated program but also uh a bummer because we we never got to really give it to a live audience yeah 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 it was dress rehearsal i think a couple hours before the final dress that we went on stage yeah to let the dancers know that we had to cancel the shows and uh of course because of the coronavirus pandemic just starting to ripple through our community um mm-hmm. we didn't it was a difficult moment because it wasn't clear yet i mean they hadn't, they hadn't banned any anything at that point that the mayor had made a recommendation um discouraging i think uh public gatherings of a certain size we had gotten wind that the governor was going to make some sort of announcement on saturday and here we are thursday we didn't know what that announcement would be that would be right yeah potentially right before our final show we didn't know if the university was going to close the campus Mm -hmm. and we didn't want to wait until somebody made that call we felt like we had to make a decision and that was probably best and safest and uh, although disappointing for the dancers. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think for the dancers, for everyone involved. Uh, but but I agree. I think it was the right and the responsible choice. You know, I, I flew back to Chicago. Uh, this uh, this would have been March 14th, I believe, was that Saturday. Yeah. And yeah. that the governor announced, uh, the governor of Idaho announced, I believe, the first uh, COVID-19 case in Idaho that day. Yeah. But, you know, I got back here to Chicago and uh, within the next two weeks, a uh, week and a half, you know, we were shelter in place. California, New York were shelter in place. Most of the country uh, had some version of that going into effect. Also, my entire calendar went in the garbage and, you know, because nobody's doing live events right now, right? So, Lubavitch said, you know, he got back to New York and he emailed me and said, the streets are empty. It's very eerie here. Yeah. Yeah, I, oof, yeah, but, you know, I think that you uh, showed some really incredible leadership uh, uh, and we were uniquely poised to make the best of that situation. I think you, what I saw from you and the leadership of Valley Idaho was, okay, if we do this, then uh, best case scenario, we have mediocre audience attendance. Mm -hmm. And this is just my speculation on the conversation. Obviously, as a guest lighting designer, I'm not involved in the decision making process, right? But, but you know, best case scenario, you do the shows as per usual, and there is there is probably a, a dip in attendance based on yeah. just the public being nervous about it. Uh, worst case scenario, uh, you only get to do one performance and it gets shut down, and you know, no version of that is going to leave the audience or the company uh, feeling good about the performance, right? So instead, you took, you made an active decision and then immediately pivoted to uh, to frontrunner films and asked them to come in and film the dress rehearsal. And Friday afternoon, we did what would have been the opening performance. And I have to, I have to hand it to them for doing a lot of good work in a very short amount of time you know there's yeah. no camera rehearsal no no real uh, time to make adjustments based on uh based on lighting or you yeah. know i mean they just kind of came in put as many cameras up in places where they thought would be useful and then yeah you know just got a real i think a real accurate representation of the show well they were they were incredible um and just like you said coming in in the 11th hour and yeah setting up and knowing we'd done a lot of work with them. They'd never filmed a performance though. We'd done only promotional work or kind of documentary style behind yeah. the work. So they knew the company, they knew the, the work that we do, but um, right. the, the theatrical context was different. And thank you to you for adjusting your lighting and walking them <laughs> some of the things that you were looking for. Um, yeah. Because of course, lighting for camera is a different, it's a very different beast. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, ultimately I think they, they made some really nice adjustments. Uh, we filmed the performance and then cut it together and released it digitally. Um, and then you guys made a decision that I thought was really great. You released it to ticket holders that had, you know, the audience members that had already purchased tickets to the show, you released it to them, but then also you allowed people to, uh, instead of saying, if you would like to watch the digital release, you know, it's going to be $12 or whatever mm -hmm. you said, uh, if you want to watch the digital release, 
please donate any amount of money. Right. It could be a dollar. Right. And I think that was both intelligent, but also very generous. Well, it was a moment that, um, yeah, I mean, we were looking at kind of what do we do with all the people that already purchased tickets and that are going to turn around and ask, what do we do with these tickets? Can we get a refund? Or we just went ahead and said what we would, what we would love and what would help us exist you know, continue to make work like this is if you donate your ticket back and we give you a well, thank you. We give you this yeah. digital film of the performance. Sure. And then and then we realize, well, we don't we don't want to limit it to the people who purchase tickets because now we have this opportunity to have an audience that's much larger than Boise. Which we were thrilled to find out that when we when we made it available, our audience we look we can look at a map of, of all the people that um that kind of logged in and, and made these demos, uh, and it's all over the country, Yeah, which was really wonderful. Now we're looking at a digital season next season that we're hoping to, you know, knowing, having this data, we know that we have an audience that's outside of Boise yeah. and that people would subscribe, um, that wouldn't be able to, to travel here to see shows. So, yeah. so whether or not we have all of our programs next year, um, in a theater, we know that we're going to yeah. produce them. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that because I think you know right now we're recording this in uh, in uh, towards the end of May and I think a lot of arts organizations, both venues and uh, and um, artists or artistic organizations that present work uh, or make work, everyone's having the conversation like, what do we do right now? Yeah. You know, do we do we pivot and make a, a digital showing? Do we kind of cut back to a skeleton crew and try and wait it out. You know, what's the, yeah. uh, how are, how are you approaching that at Valley Idaho? Well, um, you know, one thing I find myself saying more recently is, is looking at this season of challenges um, with, mm-hmm. with this crisis as what do we, what opportunities are uniquely being, um, offered right now or that we're yeah. able to invest in that we normally just wouldn't have. And, and that film version of, yeah. of the show you were mentioning, Light Dark, yeah. was really the first opening into that. And I remember thinking like, we would have had an archival video and we had, we had actually talked with Frontrunner about doing a better version of that, but we amped up big time knowing that was all we were going to have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, Why? Gosh, we, we should always do this. We. Yeah, it's something I've always been interested in. We didn't have that motivating factor of mm. of, of this crisis uh, to right. to kind of push us in that direction. So now I'm thinking, right? You know, it's been a theme for us. What what are we learning now, or what what new opportunities? Yeah, should we be paying attention to instead of focusing on scarcity and loss and yeah. limits, um, of which there are many. But it, yeah. it's our choice as artists to either innovate and embrace change and think about what are we what are we now and what are we going to be in the future or we or we um just sit back and wait and shut things down or or die yeah so i think we are excited about what Mm -hmm. what we can do differently in that uh, talking with front runner about um, how do we how do we design these pieces for camera instead of just capture and, and replicate a proscenium um, performance experience for, in a theater. 
something new. And so far, the choreographers I've talked to for next season are super excited about that opportunity. Great. Um, and we're going to be building out uh, more of a more content than just the performance um, mm-hmm. trying to capture what we already did somewhat with front runner was trying to capture the process and the work of, of building these shows and, and the culture of this company and the people involved and telling those stories. Um, yeah. I think my hope is that that fosters more connection than the arts currently yeah. experience. And I think going back to your, to your uh, sports metaphor, yeah, <laughs> our culture is so uh, has such loyalty and attachment to mm-hmm. to like their local sports team or whatever whatever team you you identify with. There's a strong identity with that. There's this this yep. affinity that in the arts seem more distant, and and mm-hmm. there are more barriers I think in our culture to the arts where yeah. we don't identify with a certain dancer like we do with a certain quarterback, even though we've never met that quarterback. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> can meet and have met that dancer. So we already have an advantage of, of not having those barriers, but people, yeah. um, people walk into a theater and that's a barrier. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I wear? How do I act? You know? And, and some people have been doing that their whole life, but some people haven't. And, and it's hard for them to want to do that. Whereas yeah. the, the format that we're looking at now, it, where you can mm-hmm. enjoy this performance in the comfort of your home, uh, mm-hmm. you can, you can put on a suit and, watched it in your living room or you can wear your sweat <laughs> right. or whatever you want to wear. So, I mean, there are ways now that we can connect um, to more people and connect on a different level. Um, and like, yeah. I connect to the artists and the stories and the collaborators and just um, yeah, give people a little bit more of an inside view into what we do. I see. I've seen that a lot. Uh, even before leading up to this, you know, partnering with front runner and I've seen the, the marketing work for Ballet Idaho as far as like trying to set up the intrigue of how the artists were creating this particular performance as it's being created, as it's happening. So then there's excitement to get people into the theater, but also they have an appreciation for it. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, which is like super, super bizarre, but like from a, because I don't often think of things from a marketing perspective. Every time I buy a product for example right now we're recording this on squadcast which is a fantastic uh a company that lets you essentially record audio locally from two different locations mm-hmm. and the long and the short of it is the the products like squadcast that tend to be successful they have media to consume that tells you about the process about the product right right and i'd never thought about that from, you know, I, I sort of compartmentalized that in my brain as far as like, this is a branding process for product consumption and has nothing to do with the arts. But the reality is that, you know, that kind of uh, technique can also help, I think, any arts or creative organization. Yeah. Yeah. You're always telling stories and that's, that's right. That is how humans relate to anything, you know, and we're, we're we're not aware but that's the format, but there's a story being told. There's a, there's a why mm-hmm. related. Um, and if not, then we, do, we ultimately forget about it or we don't, we don't find the affinity for it. Well, I, I'm super excited to see where, uh, uh, what the company is able to do next year and how you guys, uh, uh, uh to use the buzzword pivot mm-hmm. and, uh, and really try to make the best of, uh, an, 
aggressively mediocre situation uh, in the world right now, <laughs> um, which is a nice way to put it. Yeah. I uh, before we wrap up, I'd love to talk uh, about I'd love to talk about your work life balance. Um, one of the things I've always really admired about you is uh, I mean, there are many things that are great about you. You're intelligent. You're empathetic. You're a phenomenally talented artist. Um, but also like you are one of the, and I joke about this with the, with the people that have worked with you, like you're so nice (laughs) and you're, you're so nice that like when you, when I first met you, I was like, I was like, is he a little murdery? Like he's too nice, (laughs) you know? And you and Courtney both are just like, uh, wonderful people. Um, it's been great for me to see the two of you arrive in Chicago, uh, without any children. Uh, and now you have three, I think that you have struck a really, uh, at least from the outside, it seems like you've struck a really great balance between, uh, your personal life and your work life. And that can't be easy to do, uh, doing what both of you do. How did you understand, how do you come to that balance? You know, how do you approach that? Oh, well, I would, I would say well, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, Courtney would agree. No, we were talking about last night. We were sitting um, on a porch in our rocking chairs. It was pouring rain. It was really lovely, actually. Um, but we were sitting, and I was I was mentioning that I was going to do this interview with with you, and mm-hmm. and we were talking over some of the things that you had you had mentioned. Maybe we could talk about. Yeah, and we got to you know I was reading the email, and and I said, oh, and he wants to talk about work life balance, and she laughed. she said well i would say you know um and i think she's she's a good uh person to comment on this obviously yeah yeah Uh, you'd say sometimes we really find it you know and there there are periods of time or or seasons or even just like parts of the season um Mm -hmm. uh that it's easier to find a rhythm and yeah yeah and in like anything things things ebb and flow and the, the workload tends to to do that and our the needs of our children do that just depending on where they are developmentally and and our relationship uh courtney and i so it's something that i'm constantly thinking about yeah but i'm not always good at and i think you know i've i've asked i've asked other artistic directors the same question how do you do it and most people answer this way but I, I don't know that they do but i i what you try. Yeah. It's really important to be aware of because it is a job that will consume you and, and, and happily so because we love our work and we're passionate about it. Sure. Sure. Um, but it is, it is kind of limitless how, yeah. how, how absorbed you can become and how many facets of the job demand your attention and your, your care and your energy. So, um, but you know, the, I am blessed to have, as you mentioned, three wonderful mm-hmm. children and, and a living wife and um, lots of wonderful friends in our community. And I don't, I don't want my whole life to be about this job. Yeah, I'm um, sure. So I think, and it helps me be better at my job when it, when I do have that balance. And I found that, I found that in other ways, just when I was a dancer and I didn't have kids, you know, I, I was, I was actively pursuing my college degree and I felt like mm-hmm. Even early in my career, that having something else to focus on and, and a, a balance, and just intellectually and a way of using my time, yeah, helped me 
I, I felt like I was more fully present in my work. Um, yeah. When I had that, and I'm, I'm sure you can relate. Yeah. That that you have you found that in, in your life. Oh yeah, absolutely. When I when I first uh, started touring with Hubbard Street, it was like you know, a lot of it was a learning curve because I, I had never really toured before and I had a, I had a big job trying to jump into that rep and, and make that particular situation work. But you know, it was, it was 50, 60 hour weeks routinely. And then it was go Mm -hmm. home, make some dinner and pass out. Yeah. That's not, that's not sustainable. I'd change for me. Once you have a really serious partner in your life, you know, having a fiance, I, I'm forced to think about things that aren't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> things that aren't just the work uh, in an alternate universe, to use a term again, in an aggressively mediocre alternate universe, yeah. or maybe an even more aggressively mediocre alternate universe where Marissa and I are not engaged or, you know, never met or whatever, then, and I'm here by myself, like I would have to constantly be like, no, go do something else. No, go do something else. But, you know, when you have another person, it's very easy to be like, oh yeah, well, this person needs me right now. Or, you yeah. know, yeah. hearing you talk about work-life balance sounds a lot like you talking about being a dancer and always learning. Yeah. And I think it's a skill of just learning to, learning to be present in what you're doing because it's, it's, yeah, it's one thing to make time in air quotes to, to your kids. But if you're just checking your phone or you're thinking about work and you're not, getting down the ground and, uh, you know, playing with them or drawing a picture or wrestling, you know? Right. Yeah. Lately when we've been, uh, homebound, we have, we've gotten creative with pillow forts and <laughs> band dance, uh, dance parties in the and throwing them on the bed. And it's fun having boys. Yeah. You sent me a great email that was like, it had some, I asked you how the home life was right now. And you said, Today I gave them a camera and sent them out to the backyard to take uh, to take photos. Yeah, yeah, we love that. They take some amazing photos, actually. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, so that keeps me. Uh, I don't know. I I I'm so I'm just grateful to have them in my life to keep me to keep the child alive. You know, also yeah, yeah. just the wonder that they experience the world with. It's so important. And then you know to make time to just cook meals and and sit down with with my family and yeah um, super important I think um, mm-hmm. I'd probably go crazy if I didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, know, you find your way of, of finding that balance regardless sure of that makes sense family constellation but yeah um, I I enjoy how consumed I I am with work that I love. Like I think yeah. diving fully and passionately is important, but then having where you can uh, turn your phone off and, mm-hmm. and not an email till Monday is a skill that it took me years to, to build and I'm still, you know, working on it, <laughs> you know, learning, being able to be efficient with your work. Yeah. Is and I don't feel like I am efficient yet or as efficient as I should be. I, there are many times where I deliberate on something a lot longer than I need to, or I, I yeah. take too long to craft an email response because I'm worried about how it could be could be read when I should just pick up the phone, or you know, yeah, like, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm still learning; we'll still be learning for a long time. Yeah, of course, of course. That's part of it. It's just that there there are many parts of the job to learn, and I'm not 
great at all of them yet, but I, I enjoy them all. So yeah, it's a good sign. <laughs> well, I think you're doing uh, incredibly well. You're a wonderful guy. You've had a fantastic dance career that you've now parlayed into an artistic directorship at a wonderful company. You have a fantastic wife and three adorable, I mean, adorable children. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, only uh, there are only more good things in store for you. So, um, I'm really happy to have had you on this podcast. Uh, thank you for your time and for coming on. Thank you, Matt. I can't wait to have you back here in Boise, but in the meantime, it's great yeah. to talk to you and see you on the screen. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the lens that you bring to this, the whole industry and the, the care, um, and the thoughtfulness in your work. Um, it shows up. And the integrity of, of what we're able to build together has been really inspiring. Oh, that's, that's lovely to hear. You're very kind. Before we sign off, I want to just uh, talk about where uh, the audience can find you and the company. One of the really cool things uh, that has started recently is that Bally Idaho has its own podcast, which I believe is called Bally Idaho Out Loud, correct? That's right. Yeah. Started just recently. I've listened to uh, pretty much every episode. It's really interesting. It's a great podcast if you are, it's made for mostly for the kind of friends and family and the network that's connected to Ballet Idaho. But also I think anyone that's interested in the inner workings of a ballet company, uh, uh, check out this podcast. It's really great. So you can find it pretty much anywhere where podcasts are available. Um, yeah. It's called Ballet Idaho Out Loud. Uh, also, you can find uh, information about the company on their website, um, which is balletidaho.org. And I believe you guys are also on Instagram and Facebook, correct? We are. And we've been, um, during this time where we're not able to come to the studios, we've been, uh, in addition to working on that podcast, we've been making lots of different uh, little video projects and oh, great. Some content to stay engaged with our, with our audience and our community. So definitely follow us on Facebook and Instagram yeah. as well as looking at our website, but um, we'll be releasing a lot of that material in the coming weeks. So follow us there. That's wonderful. I will include all of those uh, wonderful places that you can find Ballet Idaho in the show notes for this episode. And uh, until then uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This has been another episode of Talk About the Industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Garrett and Ballet Idaho, please visit their website at balletidaho.org. You can also find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ballet Idaho or on Instagram where their Instagram handle is at Ballet Idaho. You can also listen to the company's podcast Ballet Idaho out loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at anchor.fm slash ballet Idaho. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Talk About the Industry. Mm-hmm.